This is the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast, episode number nine. Home improvements, home renovations, home maintenance, home repairs, and all the other challenges of home ownership. Welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Home Improvement Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to the Thumb and Hammer Podcast. My name is Doug, and this week I welcome Angela Allen to the podcast. You are probably familiar with the tiny house movement. I mean, tiny houses are everywhere these days, in the news, on TV. Angela has a cabin in the woods, and it may not be as tiny as some of these tiny houses, but it's still very, very small. And that's why I invited her onto the show. During the course of our conversation, we talk about tiny houses. We talk about living in small spaces and simplifying and decluttering our lives. We talk about living the dream and defining exactly what that dream is. It's an interesting conversation, so without any further delay, let's get to it. Hey everyone, it's Doug here at the Thumb and Hammer Podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Angela Allen. Angela's resume is extensive and impressive, and quite frankly, I'm not sure where to start with it, but I actually found one of her websites when I was reading about tiny houses, and that's what part of what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the podcast, Angela. Oh, thank you, Doug. Thank you for having me on your show. Now, as I said at the top, you have a very impressive resume. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving us some idea of who you are? Because like I said, I don't know where to start. <laughs> okay, well, my name is Angela Allen. I uh, live in Kentucky, and I am currently um, the Wicked Writer at wickedwriter.com. I run the blog that you were talking about, which is livingsmall.com, and that is about voluntary simplicity and downsizing and the, the joys of simplicity and living a simpler life. Um, I'm also partner in Cool Jazz Web Design and Cool Jazz LLC, which is in Danville. It's located in Danville, Kentucky, with my partner, Steve Knight. All right. I, I came across your website when I was reading up on tiny houses, like I said. Now, tiny houses or micro houses are typically in the neighborhood of about 450 square feet or less, according to one definition that I found. There are a lot of definitions of tiny house. In fact, as the tiny house um, movement has gone forward, it has changed. When it first started, it was anything under a thousand feet was considered a, a tiny house or a small house. And then they differentiated between small houses, tiny houses, and now micro and micro tiny houses. So, you know, if you want to live in less than 50 square feet, then you're, you're talking micro. I don't want to do that. No, I don't think I would either. <laughs> Um, I might, I might try it if it had wheels on it. I might try it for a little while, but uh, it would not. I would not want that to be my final destination. My first house was, uh, I think, it was eight hundred and seventy-five square feet. And previous to me, there was a family of five living in there. Hmm. So that's, I can see that. But after I got married, my wife and I, we were fine. But once the kid came along, we we kind of wanted more space, and now we're living in a bigger house. Our family room is probably the size of the cabin that you built. It, how, how big is your family room? It's about 750 square feet. 
Yes, we're, we're almost exactly the same size. The difference between being able to live in a small space and being able to live in a larger space or needing a larger space is how well organized you are. Um, it's what you need. It's, it's an emotional thing as well as a, um, a personality thing. For me, I would rather have smaller interior spaces and larger exterior spaces. So my tiny little cabin is right in the center of 25 acres of woods. That gives me everything. A lot of people who are looking at tiny houses and who think that they can't live in tiny houses haven't really looked at their life. They haven't looked at what what do they need to be happy. And I think if you're considering uh, moving into a smaller space, whether it's a tiny house or just a considerably smaller space than the one you currently inhabit, you need to think about what's important to you. And once you eliminate those things, those physical items and, and commitments, I mean, it's not just about space. It's also about mental space. It's not about just physical space. But when you think about what's important to you, what you want to do with your life, what matters, and then you get rid of everything except what matters, then even the tiniest house can be big enough. In your case, you, you built a tiny cabin or a very small cabin or whatever definition you want to go by. It's small. Uh, it is. Um, and that was for how many people? Uh, when I first made the plans, it was going to be for me and my three children. I have two boys and a girl, and that was the original plan. But since I decided to keep my life simple and build as I could, which means making the money with my business and building with cash and never taking out a loan, uh, it took a little longer to finish the cabin than I had anticipated. Heck, it took a little longer to start the cabin than I had anticipated. So when I was finished, um, it was actually big enough. It had been designed to be able to be for the boys to be there with me. But when we finished it, it was just Alex and me because the boys were older. If I had known that it was just going to be the two of us there by the time I got it built, it would have been a different floor plan. However, I'm happy with the floor plan the way it is. In my tiny cabin, it's it's two floors. So my tiny cabin has a great room downstairs, which has the kitchen and a, a gathering space, if you will, and the bathroom. And it also has a full-size laundry area, which is important to me. Then upstairs, we have a media room, which is very important to me. I'm high-tech. I'm low, small size and high-tech. And then two bedrooms. Now, the, the bedrooms are diminutive. They're very, very small. But the uh, the media room is half of the upstairs. So it feels relatively spacious, comparatively speaking. And the most glorious part about the cabin is the front porch. The front porch is actually... I'll see, 26, I think it's 26 foot by 12 foot. So we've got huge outdoor space there with my uh, swing and my favorite chimes. I've got these huge Westminster chimes that just add an ambiance to the, to the place that uh, is hard to describe. So what actually inspired you to, uh, to build the cabin in the first place? Independence. Um, I had been working, I actually worked for a hospital and I had been working there for nine years when I realized that the, I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't moving up. I wasn't changing things the way I wanted to. It wasn't, it wasn't the right fit for me, even after nine years. And the, you know, it was, it was wonderful while I was there, but I started looking at my life and what I wanted. And I kept thinking, you know, I want to go to a farm. I want woods. I want, I need green space. I need, I need space to, you know, be able to spin with my arms out and not hit anything. And I can't do that. Not even in a small town. So I needed that space at that time. And I kept dreaming about being able to do that when I retired, because when I retired, I wanted to move to a little cabin in the middle of the woods somewhere and write. That's what I wanted to do. 
And I, it finally occurred to me after some life changes, you know, it's crazy to wait until you're in your sixties to do something that you've been wanting to do since your teens. And I made my mind up at that point that I was going to heck or high water. I was going to find a way to make it happen. And I did. I had an advantage for the tiny house. I had an advantage that a lot of people don't have. I have an amazing father who has incredible skills and what he doesn't know how to do, he is quite capable of figuring out how to do. There is no way I would have been able to build this cabin without him. So it was you and your dad that built it? Um, yeah. Like you didn't hire a contractor or anything like that? Nope. No contractors. Wow. We had help. I mean, there were some people we had, uh, I had my uncle and a cousin that came in and helped with, I have a cousin who's an electrician. So he came in and gave us advice on how to do some of the wiring. And I had a, an uncle that came in and he actually gave me my front door. My uncle gave me my front door. Um, and also helped with a lot of the other questions that, that dad and I had on how to, to put it together. And I've had some friends that had come in and helped. And my son was a big part of it. He was already out at that point and he came in and, uh, had been helping, um, one of his friends with contract work and he came back and helped me by laying the floors and, and that contractor that he, um, that he was working for came in and did some contract work at the end to finish up. But before the contractors ever came in, it was under roof. I mean, the only thing that I had the contractors help with the contractor help with was, um, the interior, um, and the polishing, you know, putting up trim and, and, uh, doing some mudding on the walls and paint, things like that. And a lot of that, you know, I did and, and the kids helped with. So it's, it was good. It was a wonderful experience. You had originally designed the house for yourself and three children or three. Yes. Um, how old were they at the time? Just, uh, let's see. Alex was very young when I started sketching this. Uh, she was probably three maybe. And the boys were, um, middle school age. I had planned originally to have a, a sleeping nook downstairs for myself and to put the kids upstairs, the boys, uh, the two boys in one room and Alex in her own room. Yeah, because I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the number of people living in that, you know, that smaller space. But, but <laughs> Well, with the bedrooms being small, um, the boys would have had a, a bunk bed set up. That's how I had sketched it out. And then the, the media room would also have uh, desk areas for them to be able to study. At that point, I was homeschooling too. So, Speaking for myself, uh, you know, I have a wife and I have a daughter. There, there's just the three of us. But there are times that we just need some space for whatever reason. <laughs> you know, I, I'm yes. a guy. I'm a guy. So I'll annoy my wife. And usually it's deliberately. <laughs> and <laughs> Usually when she's trying to watch TV or something. So it'll get to the point where one of us, and I'll give you a guess as to which one, um, one of us has to go somewhere else for a while. Well, you know, just, just, that happens just with a get, lot of just people. Uh, the tiny right. house situation does not eliminate that need. There are some advantages to living in small spaces. Uh, for one thing, you can't just storm off every time you get irritated. You have to work it out. You also have uh, more concrete boundaries, personal boundaries. Um, in a situation like that where someone wants to watch television and someone else doesn't, <laughs> having a nice uh, I use V-Modas. The nice set of uh, headphones helps you to do whatever you want to do and not interfere with, with anyone else. Also, being high-tech, um, it takes less space to house your interests if you're a techie. Oh, right, because everything's on the uh, on like the iPad or whatever. Exactly, exactly. You have smaller, you have smaller stuff. Uh, I have thousands and thousands, literally, e-books right now that I own. 
that don't take up half the space that all the books that I used to own took up. Now, do I still have a bookshelf full of books? Absolutely. But do I have thousands like I did before? No, I don't need them. I've got other ways to access that. I only keep um, physical copies of the books that I want to read over and over again or the ones I want to reference. So I've got a great reference library and a few books that are just my personal favorites, but I no longer require you know, a room and a half, which is what I used to require, just to house my books. Um, you also, you find that when you live in smaller spaces, that your family bonds become stronger. You can't avoid each other. You know, a teenager can't stomp off and go storm off and slam the door to their room if they're having to share the room or if they're in a small space where that's just, that's, it's not acceptable. If you do need personal space, in my situation, you go for a walk in the woods, which is, it's wonderful therapy. And when you come back, you, you're able to sit down and, and talk through whatever irritated you to the point you had to go walk in the woods. Well, ab- absolutely. It's wonderful to be able to go for a walk, but you know, that's great when the, uh, the weather's nice or the climate's nice. But, you know, some places have winter and <laughs> rain. We have winter in Kentucky. <laughs> and that, that makes, you know, being able to go outside for that personal space or just to clear the head or whatever you need to do makes that a little bit more difficult. Well, in that case, what you do is, and what I told my children when, when I got stressed out was, um, you know, I need a little personal space. I need 45 minutes to myself or I need two hours to myself or I'm off call for the rest of the day. You know, it is four o'clock in the afternoon and I'm off call. I'll have dinner. <laughs> I'll have it ready for you, but I'm off call. And sometimes you you can deal with the stress that way without having to, without having to physically remove yourself. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to be in the east wing of the house if you need me. Uh-huh. You know, I'm right here. Don't bother me. <laughs> I'm right here, but I need some personal space now. And, you know, I had some added challenges. Not only was I homeschooling at the time that we were living in the, the, the tiny space, but I was also running a home-based business. So juggling all that, first of all, was insane. If I had it to do over, I, I, I'm not sure that I would do it that way. I'm glad I did. I learned wonderful things about myself and about my children. Um, but I'm not sure that I would recommend that particular combination. But there were times when I had, for instance, what we're doing right now, where I would have an interview or I would have something with a client that I had to take care of. And I would tell them, this probably makes me a horrible mother, but I would tell them, unless there is blood or someone is not breathing, you don't come through that door until I open it. So they got to the point that they understood that if I had a client call, I would close the door. And when the door was closed, that meant I was, you know, unless it was an emergency, unless the house was on fire, they, they respected that. And they also didn't make noise when my door was closed because, you know, when you live in a small space, you can't have something on something, someone making noise on the opposite side of the door and it not be heard in the office. Yeah. I I think the same falls, the same is true no matter what the size of your house is. Well, if you're an entrepreneur, if you work at home, everyone who works at home has to deal with these, especially if you have children. But even if you don't have children, if you have a significant other or a spouse, you still have to set up those rules. You know, I work from this hour to this hour, so I'm not going to be able to take a social phone call or I'm not going to be able to go with you to go do something. This is actually work time. Just because I'm at home doesn't mean I'm not at work. Right. Now, we already touched on this a little bit, but um, cabin fever, you know, like I said, if the weather's decent you can go outside you can go for a walk or whatever but if you're stuck inside 
Like, <laughs> living in a small house, it, it seems it like it would be rather claustrophobic. Outside for you not to go outside if you need some space. Uh, we would bundle up. I mean, you know, if the kids wanted to go, first of all, if there's snow or if there's rain and you have children, they want to be in it. It doesn't matter. They want to be in it. Uh, the hard part during that weather was to keep them inside, not to keep them outside. And the same thing for me. I mean, I love snow. I love rain. So it, it doesn't bother me. Do I want to go out and, and get soaked just for the heck of it? Probably not. But if there's a good snowstorm, do I want to go walking? Absolutely. Sounds so nice. <laughs> It is on the farm. It's it's incredible when there's snow on the farm. Once you get past about two inches of snow, there is an absolute clarity of silence there that is like nothing I've I've experienced anywhere else. Now, ninety nine percent of the time when you're on the farm, it is never quiet. My daughter, we were there uh, last weekend, and she commented that it was amazing how peaceful the place was to be so loud because all the crickets were going, the frogs were going off. You know, you'd hear there were turkeys flying over and making noise, and everything that you saw and heard that was just like a din. But when it snows, there is no noise. It is absolutely quiet. A blanket of snow just deadens sound, and you walk outside, and it's, it's like another world. Now, you're in the uh, middle of the woods, if I yes, read that right? I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so you don't have any close neighbors at all? Uh, my neighbor is over a mile away. I had to oh. build a road to get to my place. I had to build a road that was almost a mile long. Now, that was an adventure. You see, I, I like that idea. I I like that idea for myself. That was my kind of dream was, you know, the cabin in the woods thing, but... My wife, on the other hand, doesn't want to be anywhere where there's not a neighbor close enough to hear you scream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it's interesting out there sometimes. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that my parents thought I was insane when I decided to do this because I go in, recently divorced, go in with three children uh, from 18 months up to, um, oh, let's see, how old? Probably nine, I guess, and uh, nine or ten. And I announced to them that I was going to quit my job, my good job with the benefits, and I was going to buy a piece of property in the middle of nowhere, and I was going to move there with their grandchildren with no prospects, no job, and no house. And this was their security-conscious kid that had always, you know, been very careful to never take huge risks with, with personal security. So thankfully, they didn't have me committed. They were supportive, if if, if begrudgingly so in the beginning. And uh, it all worked out great. Yeah, so we already determined that you didn't want to be a slave to the bank for the next no, 25 or 30 years. Right. Like how much of it, in your case at least, does it have to do with um, living off the grid at least to some extent? Well, actually, I'm not off the grid yet on the farm. I hope to have the farm off the grid at some point. Uh, right now, I've got a well, but I still have electric. So I'm, I'm not off grid. So you don't have the Would solar Would I like to be yet? off grid? Absolutely. Is it a plan for at some point in my life to be able to live off grid? Absolutely. Now, how realistic is that for most people, though? To... Um, it, it depends, you know, it depends on what you're willing to, to give up. It depends on what you're willing to work around freedom. No one is completely free, but you have to decide what you're willing to, to be tethered by, you know, personally, I would rather not be tethered by debt. I would not, I would rather not be tethered by other people. I would rather have to work harder to, to meet my basic needs than to have someone else hand it to me and then, 
require my uh, um, subservience in order to to pay for it. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's if you boil it down, that's what it looks like to me. So the the lower you can keep your taxes, the less money you can make and be happy, and the smaller space you can live in, the more freedom you have to do whatever the heck you want to do. I love to travel. I love to write. I love to not be in debt. If you don't want things that cost a lot of money, and if you aren't willing to go to work, you know, every day, seven days a week, 40 hours, you know, 40 plus hours a week in order to do that to... To me, not being able to be in the home that you're paying for, for most of the time that you're paying for it, is insane. Why would you work all these hours and to keep up a car and to maintain a, a business wardrobe and to do all of this just so you can afford the house that you never get to do anything but go home and sleep in? There's a balance there. Now, with that said, Doug, I will admit that I'm a workaholic, but I do what I love. I don't do what I don't enjoy. Yeah, must be nice. Just, uh, just, nice. just, yeah, just thinking of myself here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that that whole thing you were easy. saying about you know yeah you you work so you have to buy a car in order to get to work uh-huh. so you got the car payments uh-huh. you have the house so you have the house payments mm-hmm. you're working to pay for the house but you're yeah and the clothes it, now don't forget the clothes the clothes that you wear when you are working for yourself are different than the clothes you wear when you're working in corporate america and don't forget about the um the food either i mean how you feed yourself it changes because if you have to eat out if you either have to pack a lunch every time you go out or if you eat out every day and you if you add that up just add up what it costs to get a latte going into work and add up the extra cost for vacations in order to recoup from the work. You know, there are a lot of things that you add in that a, a lot of people don't consider. If you take away all those needs, then your your requirement for income goes way down and your requirement for space goes way down. We tend to be a consumerist society, and if we believe that we can find happiness by buying things, then we need a larger house in order to house those things. But if we find our happiness in what we do and in what makes us happy, and that's what we, that's what we prioritize, then it requires a lot less stuff. Yeah, I'm just thinking about George Carlin's routine, place for my stuff. Pretty yeah. Much, pretty much nails it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, a house is just a place for your stuff. It's, a, it's your stuff with a cover on it. Right. And the less stuff you have, the less room you need, and that all fits. The cool thing about the tiny house movement, as far as I can see, is that there's finally this disconnect between the size of your house and your financial or social status. Um, yes. I remember years it's, ago. It's beginning. It, it's not there yet, but it's, it's beginning. Yes. Because I remember years ago, my cousin, he's about 15 years older than me. Um, he had a well-paying job, and yet he just owned a small two-bedroom house in a working-class neighborhood. You know, when he was single, that's all he needed, right? But right. I, I can remember my mother commenting that it was a shame that he had been working for a while and he didn't have much to show for it. Of course, she wouldn't know, you know, she wouldn't know how much he had in his bank account or his retirement fund or how he spent his time on the weekends or anything like that. But she was basing her opinion on his house. And I think that's the trap that a lot of people seem to fall into and probably why that, that basically is part of what led to the housing crisis in uh, 2008 where you had so many people that were upside down in their mortgages because 
they had overextended themselves for the status symbol of being in a bigger house than they could afford. Absolutely. The the scourge of the McMansion. I mean, do you see this as, uh, well, they were finally seeming to get away from that a little bit? I think so. I, I think that... Um, Although we're still very, very much a consumerist society, I honestly believe that that shift has happened so that at this point it is much, especially in the younger, with the younger generations, it is much more important status symbol wise, um, what you wear on your person and what you carry as far as electronics than it is where you live. I don't think that the consumerist in us has gone away. I don't think that the the economic push for consumption has changed dramatically uh, as far as, as the the level. I think how it's displayed has changed. The, the change in the consumerist trend is more toward micro now than macro. Before, it was macro. What house you lived in, what car you drove, what job you had. It was what was what was easily visible from a distance. Now it's much more micro, um, what people wear. Uh, the car is still there. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who judge based on cars, but electronics, the, the technology that you carry and your ability to use that has much more um, impact on your status now than it did, you know, 30 years ago. I think that technology has changed how we view such things. And I think it has helped the, the tiny house movement flourish. Because if you look at the tiny house movement, one of the cool things about um, the tiny houses is a lot of them are incredibly high tech. I mean, even those that are hand built, if you look at their systems and you look at how, for instance, those that are off grid, if you look at how they're designed so that they use the, the latest technology with the LED lights, you know, there are different types of LED lights and the ones they have now are just very low power. I've got a flashlight now that's the brightest flashlight I've ever owned, and it has one little LED in it. I'm not even sure how they do that. I'm a techie, and I don't know how they do that, but it's incredible, and the battery lasts forever. So if you if you take that sort of stuff and you take the power consumption of what a desktop from the 90s or early 2000s, what that took versus what you can do now with a tablet and how long that battery lasts and how little juice is required to to replenish that battery, you see that it's not, it's no longer required that you have huge amounts of energy in order to have much more power when it comes to technology. So you're actually looking at technology as a good thing, whereas... I, I, I always I look at technology as a good thing. I'm a geek. I've been a geek for decades. I've been a geek since before it was cool. Well, you know, with Facebook and the so social media and all the ugliness around that, you know, um, people are saying that we're less social now than we've ever been because we're spending more time looking at it. You know, we're, when people go to a concert, they're looking through the screen on their phone as they tape it rather than watching the concert itself or, you know, the same that, when you go to see your just, kids play or anything like that. You know, we seem to yeah. be more disconnected from other people because of the technology. That distresses me uh, in, in one way, and it, it, it excites me in another way. The social media, there are some applications for social media which are phenomenal. Uh, for instance, people who um, are seniors, um, people who are 65 plus, they are much more connected now than they were a few generations ago. Um, 
you get more with social media. There, there was a time when you had the, the front porch society. And then there was a time when you had seniors who were lost. I mean, they were almost forgotten, it seems to me. And now you have social media as a way, social media and other technologies, as a way for seniors who would otherwise be blocked off from the world to be more interactive and engaging regardless of their physical situation. And I find that very exciting. So social media excites me there. Social media also is a, it's a leveling force. When you're looking at um, 20, 30 years ago, the big corporations owned everything. I mean, they, they owned the market. At this point, with social media, with the technology the way it is right now, an entrepreneur, an upstart, a, a startup, can come in and, you know, make a, a huge splash, make a huge difference. And it encourages technology the way it is right now, encourages people to, to be more creative and to develop and to think outside the box and to be rewarded for that. You know, a few years ago, you couldn't be a writer and without a, a, an agent and a publishing house. Now anyone can write. Now, there are good sides and there are bad sides to that. The good side to that is it is a wide open market and it is much more of a meritocracy. The bad side of that is there's a, there's a lot out there that's really bad. <laughs> there's a lot out there that wasn't properly edited, wasn't properly written in the first place, wasn't properly edited, wasn't properly um, uh, formatted so that the, the technology end of it works. But you find some amazing gems and it's, it's sort of like uh, panning for gold. Yeah, that's true. It does level the playing field and it has led to the rise of the entrepreneur, which I guess brings us back to the tiny house thing because you can be, you know, if your house is connected uh -huh. and you're an entrepreneur that does most of your business online, then you it's, really, you really don't have to go into the office every day or that's right. That sort of thing. And that's how I got here. You know, that, that was my goal. That's how I got to where I am now. Now, granted, we have a storefront. But I could just as easily do exactly what I'm doing without the storefront. My portion of the business, anyway. Now, I'm just wondering. I'm curious if you've heard of uh, Spur, Texas. Spur, Texas? Spur, Texas. Mm, is that a tiny house community? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. Um, I've heard of them at some point, but I, I don't remember off the top of my head. There are a whole I, lot of the tiny house or, uh, tiny house not organizations, but uh, facilities, neighborhoods, communities, communities popping well, up. Yeah, Spur was the first one that I really came across. Um, it's in West Texas, population of about 1,000. First tiny house-friendly municipality. They're wired for fiber optic, uh, high-speed internet. Yeah, and all that, that's know, awesome. All, but, you know, you're kind of separated from, you, you know, you're not near anything. You're kind of out amongst yourselves, basically. Right. Um, See, I love that concept. I think that's great. Yeah, basically, they're welcoming anyone. If you have a tiny house, you're welcome to move it here, but once it's on site, the wheels must come off and it must be strapped to a foundation with hurricane straps. Yeah. So they want permanence. They don't want... Um, right. They don't want a gypsy camp. They want permanence. Yet, in other municipalities, they're trying to ban the tiny houses. Which, of course they are. It's very hard to get uh, tax money when the value of the property is so small because the dwelling is so small. 
how can we possibly pass all these rules and regulations and get you to pay for them if you only give us pennies on the dollar of what we want? I'm sorry, is, are my politics showing? They're beginning to. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense that a city that depends on taxpayer dollars in order to do all the things that it wants to do, whether you agree with them or not, would not want smaller houses to come in because the tax base does lower. I mean, that's simple economics. Well, of course, because one of the trends in the uh, tiny house movement is these advocacy groups building tiny houses for the homeless people. Yes, yes. And... There have been some fascinating things with that. I've seen entire houses that are made so that they can be actually moved by a single person just out of, with the energy of one person. I've seen um, the houses that are built on a bicycle frame that include a desk, a cooking area, a sleeping area. It's fascinating to me. I love the concept. Would I want to live that way? No, not necessarily. But would I prefer that to living out on the street? Absolutely. Who wouldn't? Yeah, it beats the cardboard box. It beats a tent. Exactly. You know, it's uh, it's more dignified for uh, for someone who finds themselves in that situation. Mm-hmm. But then you um, you read about municipalities that want to ban tiny houses altogether, whether it's for the homeless or you know anybody else that wants to live in a tiny house. There are many people and many uh, organizations and many cities, municipalities, whatever you want to call them, that are against this type of change, just out of general principle. And you have the people, and it's not just the government. You can't just blame the government of that particular city. You also have to look at people, um, the people who are there who have the larger houses, who, who are the bigger tax um, contributors, have issues with that quite often. And they have the ear of those people that are, are running the government. Obviously, they don't want a house that is 200 square feet moving in right next door to their multi-million dollar house. That's going to lower their property values. They don't like that. That'll blame them. But at some point, you have to determine where the freedom... What what was the old saying? Uh, You have the freedom to swing your fist up until the end of my nose. When you talk about property values, that's that conflict comes into to bright contrast. Those people who are protecting their property values and have the right to to not have someone else's actions diminish or dilute their property value, um, but then you don't. Also, you also on the flip side, you don't want to inhibit people's freedoms to live the way they see fit. And that's the reason I bought twenty five acres and put the cabin in the dead center of it. You're living the dream. <laughs> that's, uh... It's harder for someone else's actions to impact my life. And I feel that that's more of a responsibility of, for instance, I feel that that's my responsibility. If I feel like I don't want my neighbors to interfere with, with what I'm doing, then it's my responsibility to put enough space by buying that space or creating that space between me and them. It's not their responsibility to make sure that my idiosyncrasies aren't triggered by whatever they're doing. They have a freedom to live the way they want to live as well. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at where we live right now. Um, down the street from us, there's a multi-million dollar mansion. Uh-huh. Our house is worth far less than that. I'm looking at it as he's bringing my property value up 
and he's probably right. looking at it that I'm bringing his property value down. It's it's all in the it's all in the way you look at it. Right. But to me, it's much less about property value and much more about freedom. You know, would I prefer not to um, drive past an eyesore in order to get to my house? Yes. But is it whoever owns that property? Is it their right to do whatever they want to with their property? Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's a balance. It's trying to figure out where you fit in that and then setting up your life and your property or your home or whatever to to be as comfortable for you as it can possibly be. Now, we, we covered some of the advantages of the, of the tiny houses. Um, yes. Not being a slave to the banks. Yes. Um, Lower cost. Less well, time spent having to work just to make ends meet. Uh, the ability to possibly live off the grid, at least as much as you can these days. And we're so connected now that I, I don't think anyone is able to completely live off the grid. But if, you know, you can put up the solar panels, produce your own electricity, you can grow your own food, you can raise your own livestock if you have the property. Right. And uh, you're not relying on outsiders to provide for uh-huh. you, whether it's the utility company or Monsanto. Um, <laughs> now, how, how much of the uh, tiny house movement do you see as being uh, a response to the environment? Uh, not not so much living cheaper for yourself, but just reducing the carbon footprint. I think that there are a lot of people that are in the tiny house movement that that is one of their primary um their, their primary reasons for, for going that direction. It was not mine, but it is, I, I respect the environment, but I also am an entrepreneur. And by definition, that means that, um, uh, I believe in, in the, uh, right of people to go out and find a way to make money. So I think that too much regulation on corporations is bad for our economy. I think there again, you know, I keep coming back to this, that everything has to be balanced. I think if you go too far in the extreme of protecting the economy or uh, the environment, then you damage the economy. And if you go too far the other way, you damage the environment. You've got to find what's what works. But in answer to your question, those people that originally started with the tiny house, I believe quite a few of them, a, a large percentage. And if you go to the tiny house blogs and you talk with people who live in tiny houses, you'll see that a lot of them are concerned about um, the environment. There are people who are concerned about the economics and economic freedom. There are people who are concerned of with personal freedom and their rights to do as they see fit and travel and move as they see fit. Those people usually have tiny houses on wheels. And then you have those people who are uh, crunchy and granola. And uh, my significant other calls me a little crunchy, but I don't think I'm nearly as crunchy as most uh, tiny house um, people who, who go that path would be. And then we also covered uh, minimalism, you know the place for your stuff and what stuff, how, how did, how did you go about editing the stuff that you have? Or, uh, did, did you have much stuff to begin with? Oh yes. I had a lot of stuff. I, uh, my mother is a very, very organized person. She can, she has anything you can imagine and she can lay her hands on it, uh, in, you know, seconds. And my father is also, uh, well, mom, is a hoarder. I, I determined just recently that people who are incredibly organized, people who, who categorize things and, and make lists and do that, they are actually just hoarders with OCD. So I've got those genetics coming. And then my dad, we lived on a 50 acre farm when I was very young and dad has always been able to do anything. I mean, you know, besides just building my cabin, <laughs> he's always been able to do absolutely anything, but he keeps a lot of stuff around just in case. 
So he is that kind of hoarder, not nearly as organized as mom. So those are my genetics, and that's how I was brought up. And uh, although the house was always neat and everything was always organized, I I knew how much stuff was there. And I became much more, um, in my teen years, my early 20s, I was like everyone else of that generation, and I measured um, how well I was doing by the stuff that I had. Uh, that changed, I think... <laughs> honestly think that uh, wanting to write and write for a living is what helped to change that because it occurred to me at some point, and I wish I could tell you when, I don't know. Um, it occurred to me at some point that I would be perfectly happy if I had a uh, comfortable place to sleep, a desk, decent food, and more notebooks and, and ink cartridges than I could use. That would make me happy. And once you realize what it is that you really love, what you really need, then it's easier to get rid of the stuff that you don't need. So when I look at things now, when I look, when I'm, and I'm still minimalizing, it's a, it's a process for me. It's not like a goal that I've reached, but when I look around and I determine, you know, is this something that, that makes me happy now? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes something that made me happy, you know, two years ago doesn't make me happy anymore. It doesn't, it's just there and it's still there because it's always been there. And then it's time to rethink it and, and remove it. We go blind to things in our house. You quit seeing things after a while. If you leave a stack of papers or a stack of unopened mail on the side cabinet and it grows and it gets bigger, you really, after a while, you don't even see it anymore. So part of minimalism is fighting that that protection mechanism that, that keeps you from seeing the clutter and keeps you from seeing the extra that is unnecessary. It helps you to see it, identify it, and remove it. I will tell you something else about minimizing, something that was surprising to me at first and something I rely on now, and that is when I go through and I get rid of things, um, I'm much less likely to bring more things in. And the weight that lifts, I mean, it's almost like a physical weight. You feel lighter. You personally feel lighter when you get rid of things that you don't need. You know, when you open up a cabinet, it's no longer jam-packed and you no longer have to duck because the Tupperware falls on your head. Uh, you can go there and everything is, is neat and there's just enough and not more than you need. It's just liberating. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking back again to my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the generation that she was from, right? The outward appearance of things. The frustrating thing was special holidays, you know, Valentine's day, mother's day, birthday. Um, she had to have something, you know, it wasn't, you know, you couldn't just give a card and say, I love you. You couldn't, you know, if it wasn't something that was store bought, you know, uh-huh. if you didn't care about her enough to go out and buy something. <laughs> right. So, well, you that know, was that generation. She, she and had, much of that was driven by the corporations and the advertising. And, you know, I, I can't blame parents or, and grandparents for, for feeling that way. But they also, our parents came from a generation that was immediately following the generation that went through the depression. So the not having and the going without was so severe in the prior generation that they were raised in that the desire to, to collect is, is probably much stronger than it would be for any other under any other circumstance. Yeah, but I found it interesting after she passed away, there were all these knickknacks, you know, a lot of them I had bought for special holidays. Right. You know, they had meaning for her. They really had no meaning for me 
but now because they were hers, you know, started to attach meaning to them. <laughs> and now they're in a box in storage right now that we're paying, I don't know how much a month to store. Okay. Yeah. See that, that is a trap that a lot of people fall in. Absolutely. What you need to do, if, if you want my advice, do you want my advice on this? Oh, sure. Well, you okay. know, there's other, there are other people listening, one or two <laughs> that might want this advice. I, I'm not sure okay. if I'll take it or not, but you know, this might help someone else. The advice is, is that you don't need those things to remember your mother. You don't need those things to attach emotion to her memory. So why carry around the physical baggage when the emotional is what you're trying to, to squeeze out of it? We tend to attribute importance to things based on emotional um, the emotional aspects of our lives. And I've, I was the world's worst at this. I still do it sometimes. I still catch myself doing it sometimes. Um, but it's, it's kind of crazy because you don't need it. You don't have to have that thing to remember, you know, this time or that time. And if, if you've got something like that, that it's, it's the memory that's most important or that you've attached something to take a picture of it. Yeah. Take a picture of it so that you can go through. I mean, at this point, you can go. There are several places online you can go and get these books, hard books printed. If you don't want to go digital with it, I would go digital. But if you don't want to go digital, get one of the little books printed up and go through and just have a list, have pictures in that book of the things that bring back warm memories. And then you can get rid of the things because it's the memories you want. When it's all said and done, the most important things in life are not things. They're people and experiences. I, I couldn't agree more. But every time I go to throw something out, it's not or donate it or sell it at a yard sale or anything like that. I feel my mother over my shoulder. Saying, you know, no, 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 don't. Now she may have don't. paved the way, yeah. but you put that on yourself. And if it's something that is important to you personally, separate from your mother, it's important to you personally, then by all means, keep it. If it makes you happy, but if it makes you happy, it's not going to be in a storage unit somewhere. If it makes you happy, it's going to be on your desk or on your bedside stand or somewhere where you see it every day. Oh, I know. If, What's, it's, what, if what? it's something that you can bear to pack away out of sight, then it's probably not something that's essential to your well-being. Well, I mean, half our house right now is a construction zone. So, <laughs> you know, that that's a big reason why we have the storage unit. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 that, I totally agree with that. But there are so many people that fall into that mindset that attach the meaning to the uh, to the object rather than the person. Absolutely. And the more of these objects that we can get rid of, the less that we have to spend on buying gifts just for the sake of buying a gift. Yes. You know, you know go out for dinner. You know, some. <laughs> you or know, go yes, it's not it's not something you together. it's not something you, know, you keep, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I have, I have narrowed things down. I used to have this huge antique trunk that I kept all my sentimental stuff in. I had it when I was a teenager and it was jam packed full. Now at my age, which, you know, we're not going to mention, but at my age, I have narrowed that down to a very small, I mean, it's, it's not even the size of an overnight bag. It's, it's tiny. And the philosophy for me, one of the ways that I can help myself when I'm going through what you're talking about with those things that have emotional attachments is to look around my house and think, okay, if I had warning and I was told that I had 30 minutes to vacate, there was a tornado coming, it was 30 minutes away, or there was a fire that was going to develop this dwelling in 30 minutes, what would I choose to take 
and why. That's you know, I have 30 minutes. That will tell you what's most important to you. It's a good rule of thumb yeah. for me. I've used it for a long time. Is this something I would save? You know, I'll look at, I look at stuff as I go through and, and decide to make another, you know, minimization kick and, and get rid of even more. I mean, my significant other makes fun of me now saying that uh, I would be happy living out of a suitcase. Well, he's a hoarder. What can I say? Um, I wouldn't be happy living out of a suitcase, but it wouldn't take much more than a suitcase. It wouldn't take too many suitcases for me to be happy. Well, you know, when you go on vacation and you're living out of a suitcase, you know, isn't, isn't that the ideal? Isn't that the lifestyle that we're kind of all striving for to be able to do what we want during the day, go back to a comfortable room at night, you know, maybe have a meal and, you know, that's all you need. That's, that's the basic, you know, as long as you have a roof over your head and food on your plate. You have and a, good company. And good yes, company. absolutely. I don't, I don't want to leave the good company part out, but, but the point is, um, that is basically the whole tiny house thing, right? It's exactly. basically your vacation hotel room on wheels or right on, on a small foundation. And you don't have to escape from your life. I mean, if you look at the larger houses, and you say that you're in the middle of construction right now, so you totally understand this, I'll bet. But you look at the larger houses and you recognize how much maintenance is required, how much money you put into it, not just for the taxes, not just for the purchase, not just for the maintenance, but the, the life blood that you put into it with the money that you have to go out and make in order to maintain it with the the time, the weekends that you could spend, you know, fishing or with the children or going and having an adventure or having a, a romantic getaway. But instead you have to stay here because the water heater needs replaced. You know, there are, there are so many things that go away when you have a smaller space. Right now, I'm not saying that tiny houses have, simple um, systems. Some of them have very elaborate, very complex systems. But my perfect tiny house would have very simple systems. In my current house, in, in my cabin, I do all the plumbing. I know how all the electric is set up. I know how to rewire. Now, granted, I know that because I help build it. But the same thing with the tiny houses, I would never recommend that someone buy a pre-built tiny house. I mean, there are some people who are not handy and they're never going to be handy and they don't want to be handy. And if they want a tiny house, then sure, go for it. But the, one of the joys of the, the tiny house is learning how all those systems work and learning what's required and not, uh, what's not required and being able to repair it because your freedom quotient goes way up when you know all your systems and you know how to repair it. I know how to fix about 98% of what my cabin contains. And I've done it. You know, a pipe freezes because I leave it for too long in the winter. I go, I'm gone for two weeks and I come back and there's a, a broken pipe. There, I don't have to call somebody to fix that for me. I fix it. Well, the ideal thing with a tiny house is you're working on a much smaller scale too. It's not like you have to trace wiring through, you know, 2,500 square feet. You're only tracing the wiring through... 750 square feet. Well, which, and sometimes uh, which... that is less complex and sometimes that is more complex. It depends. For instance, uh, when I wired my house uh, originally, um, every I had Cat5 in every room, on every wall in every room. That is a pretty complex system, but I that was before wireless, you know, hit big, before wireless yeah. became as... Um, as stable as it is now. And I wanted to make sure that I had a way to hook up in every room of my house. Even the bathroom has cat five in it. 
Now, was that overkill? Yes, because technology changed. I don't need it anymore, but it's still there. So my system for that, even though it was a small space, was incredibly complex because getting all that wire in such a small space was probably a little more difficult than getting it in longer runs. That's a good point, but it's a lot less expensive. Yes, much more time intensive, but less expensive for materials. Absolutely. So how many, how many years have you lived in your, uh, in your cabin now? When, when did you, uh, when did you finish your tiny house? It took a lot of years to, to do the tiny house. So it was under roof a long time before it was completed. Um, in 2009, I moved in, um, when I moved in, it was not completed, but by 2010, January of 2010, it was. And I believe, I think that I poured the foundation on it in 2005. I think it was 2005. And I believe it was under roof in 2006. It was in the dry, as we said. So, fairly long process. It was. Considering, you know, a McMansion can go up in about four months. Well, and you also have to realize that my life changed and uh, I stopped work on it for a while. So the, when, it, when we were working on it, uh, focused on working on it, it went pretty fast. So any regrets at all? Is there, is there anything you miss about living in a, in a larger space or are, 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 no. are, are you just completely <laughs> living the dream? Well, you have to understand, I have a... Um, I have a, the storefront that I told you about in town. So that storefront is actually in a, a larger house. The, our business is in a, in a house. So even though I don't live in a large house, I'm working in a large house. I get all that space feeling and I prefer the smaller. You know, I don't like, we're, we're a small company. So, uh, I do most of the cleaning at the office and at home and, um, irritates me sometimes that so much space here is underutilized. I like efficiency. I like things to be just so. Um, I'm not going to admit to being OCD. I don't think it's quite that bad, but um, I like everything to have a place so that well, for, for one thing, as you get older, uh, if, if you don't know where things belong, then they tend to get lost and you can't find them when you need them, which just frustrates the bejesus out of me. I can't stand that. So I like to have things where I can lay my hands on them in just a few minutes. In a larger house that's not very well organized, that just doesn't happen. In my small house, I know exactly where everything is. By design. Or at least you have a smaller area to search. <laughs> Give me a few years. I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> well, I want to. I want to thank you very much for uh, for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. This uh, this definitely took uh, different directions than I first anticipated that it would take, but it was uh, also very interesting too. I, I think it's going to help a lot of people who are are trying to change their mindset a little bit, and you know maybe. Maybe we're not going to move into the tiny house right away, but just reducing the clutter and getting rid of the stuff. It really helps. It makes you know. your life more enjoyable. So, yeah, once again, thank you very much. And thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Angela Allen. Small house living may not be for everyone, but did she at least inspire you to rethink your priorities, to reevaluate what is truly important? I know I'm thinking, I'm rethinking a lot of things right now. 
You can find Angela online at livingsmall.com. She's also on Facebook at Living Smaller, on Twitter at Wicked Writer, and on Google Plus at Plus Living Small. Her other website is wickedwriter.com and the website for her technology and marketing business in Danville, Kentucky is cooljazzllc.com. Did you catch all that? Don't worry about it. All the links will be on the show notes page at thumbandhammer.com slash nine. Once again, the show notes page for this episode is thumbandhammer.com slash nine. I want to thank you so much for listening. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.